The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Hi, it's Maura Aarons-Mealy, host of The Anxious Achiever. Today, I bring you, I get this question a lot, where my friend and colleague and leading executive coach, Nihar Chaya, and I hash out a question that we hear a lot from the people that we work with. As Gen Z comes into the workforce, there's confusion and some resistance I'm finding among the powers that be in older generations about how to manage a generation that is more depressed and more anxious than previous, but also more comfortable talking about it. Because of long-held stigma, there are some managers and even some pretty enlightened ones whose impression of Gen Z's embrace of mental health can be summed up as, they're all up in their feelings. They're anxious. I get it, but I just want them to do their work and maybe be quiet too. There is a tension here, and it's something that we have to examine because having these kinds of biases and ingrained, anchored attitudes on all sides does nothing for anyone's mental health. And our harmony and performance at work. So this week, in our LinkedIn Live, Nihar Chaya and I tackled the question of managing intergenerational conversations and biases around mental health at work. Along the way, I think we came up with some really useful tools for anyone who finds themselves jumping in with an ingrained bias or anchor or judgment in a conversation at work. We talk about empathy, about listening, and about managing multi-generations in the workforce. I think it's instructive for leaders and people of any age. I'd love to hear what you think, so send me a note on LinkedIn. Thanks. Hello. How hot is it where you are? Hey, Maura. Oh, my goodness. It's like a heat wave over here in Dallas. It's about 100 degrees, I think. It's getting pretty hot here. Ooh. We are going away to San Diego, though, in a few days, which would be nice. Some beach weather. <laughs> Everyone out there, if you're listening, tell us where you are and how hot it is where you are. <laughs> I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, which is not known for its heat. And it's it's got to be over 90 today. It's very hot. Yeah, it's, it's so uncharacteristic, right? But climate change is a real thing. It's a real thing. <laughs> real thing. I wish someone would listen. Government. <laughs> so today we have kind of a meaty, spicy topic. And I know you've done some research. So I'm, I'm excited that you've done some because I have not done the research I wanted to do. So listen, I don't know about you. I get this question a lot. The younger people on my staff are talking too much about mental health. Are they using it as an excuse? Mm. Or yeah. some, some it, version of that? Yeah, I um, I it's so it's such a word like excuse is such a loaded word, right? It's like, wow, you know, where's the empathy? But um, I, I did I did actually do some some digging around around the idea of anxiety in the workplace, and particularly with the generational gaps. And I did pull some things that I thought I'd share with with you and the and the audience. 
Um, so the Hartford, the insurance provider, um, uh, and actually leading provider of workers' comp and, and employee benefits, they did a study and they actually found that Gen Z workers are the most in need of mental health support compared to other generations. Mm. In fact, 53% are highly stressed and 44% feel depressed or anxious at least a few times per week, but they're less likely to believe that their employees employers care about their health, their mental health. 44%. Yeah. And 51% believe that the employers don't care. And what's, what's also interesting is that the, um, while the younger generations in the workplace, like Gen Z and, and millennials, say their mental health affects their productivity, the oldest generation in the workplace are less likely to report. So work baby boomer was 8% would be, re- would be likely to report they're, they're struggling. So it just shows you a big gap, I think, in terms of just the acceptance. I mean, let alone whether they're experiencing it, but even the acceptance of I, that I'm dealing with this and I'm going to report it. Yeah. I interviewed Dennis Stoley from the APA, the American Psychological Association. And, and he said, to, I said, look, is it that Gen Z and younger millennials are more depressed and anxious than previous generations? Or are we just talking about it and reporting it more? And hmm. He said it's probably both. Hmm. And audience, tell us what you think. Tell us what you're hearing. Tell us your questions. This is something yeah. no one has the answers yeah. to. <laughs> and, and let us know also if you're a Gen Z or Gen X or millennial. Uh, if, and by the way, also, I'll just add, please feel free to hit the like button, the share button. If you see anything that you like, um, we definitely want to have more people in your network also listen in. Yeah. And feel free to participate. Tell your friends. Yes. You know, the other thing that, that I found in terms of this, uh, this particular topic was that there's a, a movement now, I think, around mental health awareness that is much more than, you know, when I was growing up. But also there's a lot of people that are not mental health practitioners offering advice on these things. So Guilty. there was interesting data on this that like people are going to TikTok, people are going to videos, you know, from folks who are just their friends and getting that advice. And, you know, perhaps that's not even a bad thing because there's more of a openness about it, but you wonder whether it's actually, you know, good advice and, and really kind of evidence-based. I know it's something, you know, I'm not, I'm not a licensed psychologist. I, I try very carefully to tear, toe the line between advice that is therapeutic, diagnostic, anything like that. And just, you know, my own lived experience and research, it's really hard to do. I mean, I think, I think what I'm really interested in, actually, I was listening to a podcast yesterday and, um, or maybe it was a show and a person probably of our generation, Gen Xer said, you know, Younger generations are much more comfortable telling me how direct, direct, much more comfortable telling me directly how they feel about things. And I like it, Mm. but it took me some time to learn. Mm. (laughs) Do you think that's a factor here? I think so uh, completely. I think that there is a, for whatever reason, whether it's they're raised by parents who are our age, you know, who are, who have kind of learned the hard way that Mm -hmm. uh, kind of keeping things stifled or, or, uh, you know, too much inward can be damaging. They, this generation, I think is, is much more, um, encouraged to share what they're really thinking. You know, sometimes I think in, in certain organizations where you have so many different generations all working together, I suppose there's some people that might feel like that's a little bit obnoxious or a little bit like, you know, they're just complaining, but you know, it, 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 I guess it, it, depending on your philosophy, there might be some real value in the fact that what at least they're talking about. 
I mean, why, why not just at least put it out there in the open? Yeah. I know it's, it's challenging. I think that I certainly came up in a world where I was taught that I had to earn the right to say certain things. Um, and coming up in a pre me too era, even earn the right to stand up for myself. So I'm really glad that things have changed, but it kind of weirds me out because I get this knee jerk reaction sometimes of like, wow, that's really entitled of you to say, considering this is your first job. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a balance, right? It's, it's on one hand, um, you know, I, I, I was a victim, I think of bosses that felt like you got to pay your dues and, uh, certainly felt uh, many times that I wasn't being recognized for the talent that I was bringing. And I had to kind of play the, the role of deferential, being deferential first and proving myself. But I also think that that's kind of part of society in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wisdom from the elders is always a thing that, you know, is there. Uh, I, I think if, if you're a Gen Z person going into the workplace and you really don't believe in, in any kind of um, decorum or kind of t- waiting your turn and deferring a little bit, then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. In, in that case, I would say, well, then you should just go ahead and start your own company and, and see what happens. Um, but there are some rules of the, of the road, really, in those organizations. At the same time, I do think that if you're living an inauthentic life and you're completely, you know, uh, holding in a lot of the feelings that you have, particularly, like you said, standing up for yourself when things are going wrong, then uh, that's not really helping anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, and it can be quite damaging, I think, if you just continue to perpetuate that that type of work. I think there's, I want to come back to empathy. I think probably this comes back to empathy on both sides. I will say I was in a discussion recently um, in another country, but it was really worrying. We got to talking about the subject and um, I heard everything from since the pandemic, I have people on my staff who are saying I don't function well early in the morning, so I don't work in the morning or my anxiety means that I can't come to the office now that you have RTO, you have return to work. I get that a lot. And then I heard comments like, well, nothing a good recession won't solve. Meaning it's nothing that like when people, when younger people experience a bad economy. Now, I don't think that's true. I think that's a terrible thing to say. Mm. But an audience, if you're hearing stuff like this, I, I'm just, I was a little bit flabbergasted. Um, by what I was hearing. Yeah, I, I, I think it's an interesting too, the interesting point about the empathy piece uh, that people tend to, and this, is, this probably isn't anything new, but um, people tend to have more empathy for themselves when they're dealing with it. But when it, it creates a challenge for themselves as a boss of an employee who's acting like that, their empathy goes out the window. It reminds me of an interesting thing that happened actually just this week. I have a client in Switzerland, in Basel, where in Europe, they don't really have the air conditioning everywhere like we do in America. And it's like the heat waves are crazy there now, you know, because of climate change. So they're like at the 85, 90 degrees mark. And he said that it's funny how now that the heat's happening, people are coming into the office now. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's AC. <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of like your point, like a recession would solve this and actually AC will also solve Maybe the cl- climate change. Oh my God. Oh, that's, that's, that's sobering. Um, 
I think I think return to office mandates are really bringing all this stuff to a crucible, right? Yes. Because there's a lot of feelings on all sides. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've often wondered, you know, because I usually work with senior leaders. So um, I, I often wonder whether I'm only hearing one side of it, mm-hmm. which is that these executives are, you know, for one thing, they're kind of they're not always in the office themselves but they are kind of responsible for a lot more people. Um, and generally I would say their view is that we want to have people around because it really is, it, it's, it's easier to do your job. Um, but, you know, when you look at the, the broader population of most companies, um, it's not clear that you need to be in the office all the time to do this kind of work, uh, you know, and, and yet you are having to keep being told that like, I, you need to come in just to make the boss feel a little bit better. Uh, that's that's not necessarily a great, I think, retention tool. Is that what people are being told, or is it because there's a larger company mandate? It's a company mandate, but I think it's it's almost like you know you should be you you shouldn't even think about having more than a couple of days at home. Uh, it, you know, I think during the pandemic it was like there was a lot more sympathy around that because all of them were dealing with it, and now it's like you know if you even think about it as an individual contributor who could potentially do your job without having to be in all the time you're almost shamed a little bit mm. into this idea that you shouldn't even have that um that desire to work from home um so mm. it's it, and again i'm generalizing but i do think that it's interesting the difference in level of empathy between the senior leadership and and the, the folks that are kind of more in the front line do you think about the empathy thing coming back to mental health you know I know a lot of your work is helping senior leaders live authentically and mm-hmm. improving their leadership by living authentically. You know, is there a risk that if mental health at work becomes over-identified with, say, younger people, that older people who may tend to be in more senior leadership don't get to feel that authentic sense of yes. self? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, if there's one mental health kind of related issue that I think comes up for the senior leaders that I work with, uh, is the idea of what's going to happen after I retire or, you know, should I retire? Because, you know, and they're not necessarily at the door of that yet, but they're definitely, you know, further along in their career than let's say the people that are coming in behind them. Many organizations I work with might, you know, have a reorg Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they're flooded by early career folks who are, you know, they just seem to have a lot more in front of them to deal, you know, a lot of more optimism. And so there are these folks are at the twilight. And I think if you're not, if you're kind of conditioned to not share those honest stories about feeling a little bit nervous and scared about your future, uh, there's a lot of different ways it can show up in a very, in a very negative way, right? It could actually, you could take it out on your team. Mm -hmm. You could end up playing favorites. You could potentially uh, stick around for too long. I see that a lot too. A lot of leaders will just, they just don't move on to let the next generation come in uh, because they're just so concerned about holding on to their, their legacy. So I do think that, you know, it, if I think about the, the, what we're learning from the Gen Z around opening themselves up to, to this idea of anxiety and talking about it, it would be very beneficial, I think, for senior leaders and older folks to be able to, to embrace that as well. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I feel that every generation needs to be able to embrace whatever emotions they're feeling at work so that they don't act them out. You know, Um, I I have I have just recently seen someone who was on the brink of retirement just act out very, very 
intensely in meetings and, and it was very interesting. Um, and, and I, I had empathy for that person because I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like they're having a lot of feelings, like giving away an identity has got to be so, you know, that identity that role shift, right. Has got to be so intense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's really fascinating when you think about, um, I think the new, newer generations also aren't working at companies for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so many of the people who are the boomers or even Gen Xers, these are the folks that actually have been with one company for 25 years. You know, when I was growing up, I remember, you know, thinking like, wow, if you got like a gold watch at your retirement ceremony, you were like really old, you know what I mean? And now we're like, I'm not that far from that age where people are like, I was at this company for my 30th year anniversary, you know? And, and, but, but also we're living longer, right? We actually have more, um, we're healthier. We're doing more things with our, our life past retirement. And so that can be also daunting to mm-hmm. say, I'm only 55. Like, what am I going to do for the next 20, 30 years? It's not enough to live just on the pension and a lot of pensions aren't even available anymore. And so, whereas I think in the past you could say, okay, cool, I'm going to hang up and I'm going to hang out for the next, you know, twilight of my life. Now there's a, actually half of your life is still there <laughs> and, and you've retired. What are you going to do? Yes. You know? Yes. And that, that so. brings anxiety. So, so totally. what's this, how do we start talking about this in a more productive way, right? That is inclusive of every generation of different experiences. You know, another angle I want to lay onto this. Um, who was I talking to about this? Maybe it was Chip Conley, who runs the Modern Elder Institute, and this is mm-hmm. his sweet spot, right? Is helping mostly fortunate, privileged people figure out what the next half of their life looks like in a meaningful way. But, you know, part of it is that, um, and data supports this, that Gen Z and younger millennials don't want what we may have wanted. And also know that a lot of what we fell for is a lie coming back to climate change, coming back to social inequities, coming back to capitalism, for God's sake. So mm-hmm. I think there's an element also of like younger people saying, you know what, work is bad for my mental health because work is bad for mental health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, I completely agree with that sentiment around they they want different things than what, what we wanted. One thing I definitely think is true is the idea of moving up the corporate ladder is just not as appealing. Mm-mm. Uh, it, you know, it's, and, and I think what happens for a lot of leaders when they think about motivating their, their teams, they don't really know what toolbox they, they, their toolkit is very limited. Mm. You know, it's like they can't think they, they might be able to give them a gift card. They might be able to give them, you know, uh, Hey, we'll take the team out on a happy hour. The promotion isn't really the thing that they can dole out as much anymore. Um, and it's might not even be the thing that people want, you know, because it's not, tr- it's not clear that, you know, they, somebody actually wants to rise to the CEO level in a lot of companies if they're, if they're starting out now, maybe they do as they grow, but it's so, so what I think what happens is if you have senior leaders who are kind of grew up in Gen X and boomer, um, generations, they're thinking that, well, Hey, why wouldn't you be ex- excited about me giving you this opportunity, you know? And then it's like a little bit of a slap in the face to say, wow, like you don't even really want this. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to have less time in the office. You want more vacation time and more perks and things like that. It doesn't make a lot of sense to people. So I think part of it also is being able to to step back and say, we might be thinking about fulfillment in life very differently. 
And work is just a part of that. You know, work work plays a, a certain part in that Venn diagram or whatever, you know, in a different way for for different generations. And then how do you actually have the conversation about how can I help you make that more fulfilling for you? Okay, so that's my question. And listeners, if you're there, chime in, send a like, send a question. Okay, here's my question. So there's a misalignment maybe on values. There's yeah. a misalignment on perspective taking of empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where do we start? Well, you know, the first thing that I think about is observing where the misalignments are mm-hmm. and un- and recognizing whether, you know, people are even feeling comfortable enough to share that there's a misalignment. So again, you know, if there if I'm gonna feel very shamed for wanting more time off, you know. Uh, and for taking my PTO, I know that's a big thing that people talk about recently is like, wow, you're given PTO and you're feeling guilty to take the PTO, you know, that has to change, you know? And, and so that taking out the whole thing about I'm judging you for taking time off. I feel like that is the, the a big part of this. And I suspect maybe the first step is that you actually have leaders that would have that open discussion and to say, how can I make sure that people do take their time off. And some companies are doing this, I think, but I think there's still an underlying concern about how does this look in terms of my career? Is this going to ding me in the long run? So I think that's like an aspect, and, and vacation just one aspect, but there might be lots of themes here where we, it's very clear that the things that motivate me as a 50-year-old leader are just not the things that are going to drive a 25-year-old early career person in my company. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Or maybe what we does do. Drive you? Maybe we, I mean, that's the other cool yeah, thing is yeah. like, maybe you're both aligned. Maybe you're both there because you want to create the robotic that does X or you, but I love right. the idea of actually having, and, and I would recommend bringing in a skilled person to have this conversation, yes. not, yes, not having it ever over email or Slack. Not a good idea. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if I told you about my own big aha moment, but, um, I was in, I was in a meeting in a, in a, in a sort of comfortable retreat-ish meeting and a, a younger person, the idea of ambition came up and I was talking about my wonderful client, um, who was almost 80 and would always joke that she was post ambition, right? She'd done it all. She had an incredible career and she was like, I'm just here to make di- a big difference. I'm post ambition. And mm-hmm. a younger person in the room said, you know, I think I'm post ambition. And I was like, what? my years of conditioning came into play and i at first was judgmental like how can you even say that and then it was like oh my god tell me more tell me why and it was revelatory i cannot Mm. overstate the impact that that conversation had on me wow and again I I had to really in the moment though deal with my own bias, and that's hard to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was a safe well, space. Amazing. So so what what kind of changed for you in terms of the after you kind of took that in what what happened after that for you? Well, this person explained why they felt like they just wanted a good life, and it wasn't all about work and and that American models of never taking your vacation and giving mm-hmm. it all up for work just 
weren't a value that this person had. And, and then someone else chimed in and said, you know what? I don't think you're post ambition. I think you have ambition for other things in life besides right. just your career. And that became a super rich discussion. And so it reframed how I was thinking about ambition. And there's a lot of people mm-hmm. thinking about ambition, you know, multiple, we have multiple intelligences. Maybe we have multiple ambitions, which mm-hmm. I think is true, right? We're ambitious for our family. We're ambitious to help fight climate change. We're ambitious for mm-hmm. our tennis game and we're ambitious for our career, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, oh, before I forget one thing, I, I noticed a comment. Um, oh. Jamin Acharya asked, for international viewers, please define jargon, i.e. PTO. Sorry for that. P- PTO is a paid time off. So that would be your vacation time that your company gives you. Um, but one thing more I wanted to touch on with, with, based on what you just said was like in a post-ambition world, I wonder whether um, like some of Dan Pink's work on the on the, the book Drive, where he talks about the three things that really motivate people are is not money. It's not necessarily you're going to give you more comp and stuff, but it's um, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Mm. So the idea that like, okay, I'm you might not get driven by the promotion, or maybe you you are, but the idea really is, how do I provide you the autonomy you need, the chance to develop a mastery of something, and also a sense of purpose that aligns with those values as we're talking about. Uh, and I think if the more we could have those kinds of discussions, it could be really helpful. The challenge I think happens that a lot of leaders who are not necessarily evolved or enlightened themselves are also thinking about the short-term um, needs. So they're thinking, well, okay, go get that somewhere else. <laughs> right. <laughs> right now I need you to perform because I need to hit this quarter, you know, or whatever. And I can't, if, I can't be responsible for whether that aligned with your mastery or your purpose yet. But I think ultimately it's the idea that if you play the longer game, if you coach them on, on these kinds of ideas, they're going to be more per, per, uh, performant, performance-based and definitely much more potential to, yes. to develop those skills later. I'm laughing because um, I, in my experience, you know, that's just evolving working with people who are neurodivergent. Motivation mm. is a big piece of it. And part of it is like, you can't make me be motivated by the things that usually you think motivate people. I am mm-hmm. motivated by very different things. And we need, you need to know that as my manager, right? Yes. And, but I think that's true for everyone. And we know that autonomy and agency are mm-hmm. the values that people want at work. They, they want that. So I love that idea of like stripping down to values, what drives us, but then also we have to define short-term objectives. Yeah. And I think that where leaders sometimes get stuck is that they define autonomy as, oh, so so they just want to be left alone. Mm. You know, that's not really what autonomy has to mean. You know, autonomy is around respecting their talent, respecting that they have a point of view, you know, telling them, helping them come to you with an answer and a solution, as opposed to you telling them what, you know, it's not just about like absence of, of being around people or like, you know, Hey, autonomy is I, I want to work in my own little cubicle and, and I don't want my boss right. to give me any instructions. Let me work from home. Right. Exactly. Although that is a piece of it for a lot of people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a piece of it for sure. But I think it's really about like, you know, if you think about even parenting, you know, or as you mentioned, it's, it's like everywhere in human, the human condition is such that none of us really want to be controlled 
you know? And so if you can give somebody the sense of, of agency and self, and they can control the, you know, how their outcomes are happening, you're going to help them be more resilient and you're going to give them a little bit more respect. And in other words, it's going to make them more motivated to actually stick around and, and not, not, not look elsewhere. So where does mental health layer into this? If, if you have, you know, someone on the team who is struggling with anxiety and feeling very anxious when they come into work is, is, is mapping the, these values and motivation. Is that going to help? Or is it much more of a clinical? Com- like, I wonder. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. And you know, as, as you're talking, the more I think about it, cause I love your comment about bringing a skilled facilitator into these conversations. It, it reminds me of a lot of these diversity and inclusion conversations that companies are having, where it also seems to be something that you don't want to do it the wrong way. You don't want to, you don't want to create more, um, misunderstanding and, and, um, you know, faux pas in some respects, you know, that's going to make it, that's going to diminish trust even more because you tried to help, but you didn't really actually know the right advice to give, you know? And so I would say even with, with anxiety, um, you start, I think, with some compassion, right? I think that's all something all of us can do, whether we're licensed or not in this area is compassion. Um, is listening, is asking questions and also helping them kind of remove the stigma of it. And then I think it's really about helping them have resources around them to say, okay, here's what you could potentially look at in terms of anxiety. Because I, th- I think the other piece of it is, and I see this a lot with my coaching clients because everything is confidential and we create that, that trusted relationship. There's degrees to which people are willing to, you know, be open about these things and certainly with their employer too. So I, I would say as a, as a leader, if you want to help, certainly show the compassion and then be a, a, a trusted kind of partner along the journey without necessarily having to tell them, you know, what to do or, or that this is a bad, bad idea. Right. Which, which I wouldn't do. Daisy yeah. Oje Dominguez has a great approach for this. And, and she says with, with people who are struggling a little, she'll say, do you want me to witness help or distract? Witness, help, or distract, oh. or listen, help, distract. And I, love, I that. love that so much. I've been, my husband and I have been using it with each other because it's not controlling behavior. It's respecting agency and it's saying, look, I'm here to help you if you want that. And maybe that's just calling up HR and getting you what you need. I'm here just to listen and not offer advice if you want that. And if you want to just go out for a cup of coffee or like look at TikTok, we could do that too. Yeah. I just, I love that. I love that. Well, so that, that is brilliant because, and, and by the way, that's something that I'm going to take. She would want me to tell you that it's not her who came up with that. It's a coach, yeah. a wonderful coach that she had, but I'm blanking on that. Part okay. But, but I mean, it's, it's a great technique because I've been in situations also where I really care for my client and they might have an emotional moment, you know, we're, we're getting the Kleenex out, you know, and it's like, I don't know what to say in the sense that to really show, cause I care for her or him. But I don't want to be in a situation where I'm making it worse, you know, just by talking, mm-hmm. right? Or being silent mm-hmm. and being, you could be misunderstood. And I love that question. So you're actually helping, you, you're asking them to help, help you help them, basically. Yes. Love or not, you know, just to be there. Or not. Just to right. be there. I want to actually close out here with a quote that is really beautiful. I'm actually writing an article about this. So aren't I lucky that I, um, get to talk this out with you. But I was recently at the Mental Health America conference and they had youth ambassadors. And one of the things that the youth ambassadors were talking about is that, you know, a lot of what we think 
is helping in older generations actually enforces intergenerational trauma. And this was a beautiful quote. MHA youth advocate said, it's wrong to characterize Gen Z as a fragile generation. Adults think we're being lazy for getting help, but we're not. And I could not applaud that more. I could not Mm. applaud that more. That is brilliant. And this was from a teenager, not a person in the workforce. Oh, wow. And what do you think we, as we're leaving the audience today, what, what do you think is a call to action that we could recommend to the audience based on that? Listen before we judge, right? Mm-hmm. Just literally approach more with a listening mode. Yeah, it's the whole idea of being non-judgmental is such a powerful thing, not just in terms of, because we talk about this, right, with anxiety, like not judging our own emotions and feeling anxiety. But like you said, also not judging the other person. Yeah. I mean, just imagine the amount of, of support you can give somebody when you're not judging them. Yeah. Right. And, and because we as humans, especially when we're successful, our way is the right way, right? Because it worked for yeah. us. <laughs> and so. That's right. And so when someone else is ex- expressing someone that's uncomfortable for us, that's triggering for us, whatever, we don't like it. We think they're being lazy, indulgent, whatever the word is. Of course, our way is the right way. And so we have to take a beat and just listen. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard. That's, whoa, that's hard. My kids tell me I yeah. need to do that all the time. <laughs> that's the, I think that's like kids' job, you know, <laughs> is, to, is, to, is to tell parents that they're just not doing it right. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> thank you. Oh, this was such a pleasure it as always. So great. And audience, send us comments and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Yes. See you in two weeks, Maria. Take care. Bye. That's it for today. To hear more LinkedIn Lives, head over to my profile on LinkedIn where they're all indexed. You can subscribe to my newsletter too. And be sure to subscribe or follow the Anxious Achiever feed for more of these conversations, as well as my regular podcast episodes.